Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. My trusty sidekick, Doug. Today, we are going to be talking about... Uh, technology, uh, what it is doing to your life, your brain, your soul, and to guide us on this journey we have with us, uh, James Poulos, who is executive editor at The American Mind and also author of the new book, Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. So first off, James, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? You're a very interesting dude for people who are not familiar with the uh, the Poulos canon. So uh, just give us a little bit about your origin story. Uh, so let's see. Um, I was born just outside of Detroit, Michigan um, at the very end of the 1970s, uh, which makes me an ex-ennial, I guess. Um, <clears throat> which, uh, which seems like just a sort of answer to a Buzzfeed quiz until you realize that, uh, the first generation that is going to, uh, be born with no memory of life before the smartphone, uh, is going to be coming of age, um, over the next, I don't know, five years or so. And uh, while, of course, people can have children at different times in their lives, uh, the the band is fairly narrow. And so uh, most of the uh, most of the Americans, really most of the people around the world uh, who will be coming of age first as the first generation to be born with no memory of life before the smartphone, life before the digital age, will more or less be children of uh, people born around the time that I was born. Um, that seemed important to me, uh, especially you know waking up every day and logging on as we all do, but doing so in a professional capacity, as you know, not that many people do, I guess, at this point, <clears throat> uh, and and just watching, you know, legions of mostly well-intentioned. Uh, younger guys um, posting on the internet for free, uh, trying to convince everyone, anyone that they, they really have something to say that needs to be paid attention. Uh, no, really guys this time, please, bro. Uh, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll explain the world from scratch. I know everything is becoming incoherent and inapplicable to your life, but you know, just, just please click bro. And you, you'll understand. I will show you the way. Uh, and that is becoming noise. It's, it's becoming less of a signal and it's becoming more of noise. Uh, and people are, are, you know, doing what people do when they face information overload, which is fall back on pattern recognition. Uh, and the pattern that, um, that I recognized was, you know, a lot of these, um, a lot of these guys and they're predominantly guys, although there's some girls as well, uh, trying desperately every day to get, get enough attention so that they feel like it's not a fruitless endeavor to try to, to communicate, you know, the, the benefit of all the knowledge that's rattling around in their heads. A lot of these guys do not have children. Um, many of them are not married. Um, and so there's a, a sort of generational, uh, problem, uh, percolating up, which is, you know, the, the folks who we need most to 
keep that continuity of human and personal uh, and family memory going into the digital age, uh, those those people are are kind of not not there yet um, in many respects. Uh, and honestly, a lot of the ones who are are not are not students of technology. They are not political theorists. Um, and so there's a gap, uh, and I really wanted to fill that fill that gap uh, and show how it could be done and uh, and dramatize what the stakes are if uh, we fail to do so. Uh, and that's the genesis of this book. Yeah. So what uh, what distinguishes the digital age and makes it so different from everything that came before? Uh, you know, we had television, radio, print, uh, writing, lots of lots of changes in communication technology over the years. Uh, what what is it that that makes the digital age so so different? Well, so uh, we got into this mess in the first place uh, precisely because our leading technologists and uh, the sort of uh, you know ruling ruling factions who have been uh, to some degree sharing power over the American regime and, and sort of the globalized Western order, uh, but in other respects have been sort of competing or jostling for you know who's really on top. Uh, that that group of people uh, convinced themselves pretty easily. Um, that computers and computer technology would perfect or complete or consummate their global order. Um, you know, nothing necessarily nefarious or conspiratorial about it. Uh, although there are always like dark, nasty people, uh, in positions of power and the, the more hidden or obscured that power is, uh, the, the easier it is for them to hide out and, uh, and do what they will. Um, but you know, it was, it was really on, on the wings of, of great optimism and idealism and naivety that, uh, that the people in charge, uh, thought, you know, well, we created these machines and we're really smart and we have like the, the best ethics and the best experts. And so what could go wrong? You know, uh, we tried, um, monarchy and that, you know, didn't work. And we tried, uh, aristocracy and that didn't work. And then we tried democracy and like, uh, you know, that, that didn't necessarily work so well either. And so, so, you know, they, they even came to look upon their own like bureaucratic form of rule as, as imperfect and limited in certain ways, which of course it is. Uh, and so the idea was, well, you know, we'll just, we'll create this kind of network of machines and through the power of math, uh, we can make outcomes determinate based on inputs and uh, we can, you know, shrink the world, unite the world, uh, connect the world and everyone will be more or less friends or at least friendly because uh, the Cold War is over and we won. Um, there's no sort of competing ideological framework. Uh, and so, you know, we'll, we'll just do that and, uh, we'll all live happily ever after and what could go wrong. Um, and so, you know, the, this kind of apparatus that was constructed, um, it was full speed ahead. There was not a whole lot of thought given to things like, you know, well, uh, are we creating, um, autonomous entities that have no souls and we don't really understand like how these things work? You know, perhaps David Bowie was onto something when he described, uh, digital entities as, as aliens that were invading our world. Uh, you know, um, there wasn't a lot of thought given to that. There was a lot of thought given to making gobs of money, creating a sort of communicative communication superstructure, 
that was just as as comfortable uh, playing along with um, the creative class, as it was called, uh, as it was playing along with the military industrial complex and the intelligence community, uh, and um, and what we discovered and what our our ruling elites discovered is that well, when you take things that are basically weapons and you spin them off and commoditize them into entertainment products, uh, people will use them. Uh, they'll use them a lot. Um, they'll want to use them all the time and they will use them for their own purposes. Uh, and one of those purposes, as it turned out, was, you know, in our Republican form of government, uh, Donald Trump was elected president, uh, defying the odds, you know, the 99.9% New York Times needle odds. Uh, and that, you know, that caused uh, the people in charge to realize that um, perhaps they didn't understand their creations as much as they thought they did. Um, and of course, we we all saw what happened after that, which was a uh, coordinated panic at the upper level of our socioeconomic system, uh, which has still not ended. Uh, we're still very much in the throes of that panic. And uh, we are witnessing, you know, not just the American or the Western regime, uh, but other regimes, other civilization states, uh, scrambling as fast as they can to figure out how their unique resources can be deployed uh, to regain some kind of control or mastery over the digital swarm. Uh, and I think it's important that we recognize that it is a swarm, you know, um, in the TV age, when TV was the most powerful uh, uh, technology of communications, uh, what happened on screen was more important than what happened off screen. Um, and, uh, you know, to a degree, uh, some of our, uh, most powerful technologies right now are kind of hybrids of TV and digital, uh, you know, you just think of social media. Um, and so there's still this sort of sensibility that like, well, you know, we're addicted to our screens and so on. And there's some truth to that, but what's still more important is, you know, today it's really not the screen that is supreme. It is the database and what happens in the database is more important now than what happens outside of the database. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's the big transformation that we're going through, uh, is that the database is supreme and that we, you know, we are inside these, these entities. Um, and many of these entities do things that, you know, un until a few years ago were really only associated with angels and demons. They, you know, can, can be in multiple places at the same time. They can fly through the air with the greatest of ease. They, they're invisible, uh, disincarnate, um, and uh, and so the uh, the response to this situation um, that is uh, that that is a response kind of shaped and formed by the technology itself uh, it has been for human beings to try to imitate these entities um, and to you know if not out and out worship them as idols uh, to to try to uh, to try to merge with them um, and you know when you look at everyone walking around with their smartphones at all times. Uh, is it because they're they're glued to the screen like they were in the TV era, or is it because they're becoming cyborgs, which is uh, which is much different than just passively sitting in front of the TV watching stuff? Uh, so you know that's just kind of a a, a basic sketch of uh, of why the the difference is so intense. Um, we've got these these swarming digital entities, and uh, our you know people in charge are trying to figure out how to rule them, rule the bots, and to rule us through them. Uh, and there's a lot at stake there. So how does this tie to the title of your book, um, Human Forever? Uh, I guess, and fundamentally, I guess, to answer that question, what's it mean to be human? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, to, to be human is to be incarnate. We have bodies. 
um, an, another core component of being human is that we have souls. We are ensouled. Uh, and you know, this isn't something that, uh, that you can only recognize if you are an adherent to a specific religion. Uh, although, you know, certainly it, it helps. Uh, but you can go back to Aristotle and you can say, oh, right. You know, there's this thing called anima and there's this sort of, you know, this form, uh, which are, you know, our bodies receive or conform to. Um, and it is what distinguishes us from, you know, from inanimate things. Uh, so, you know, we have souls, we have bodies, um, and, uh, and, and we, uh, can communicate in ways that, uh, that other animals, even the very, very smartest of animals, you know, cannot, uh, and as a result of those, uh, capacities and as a result of our, our having hands, uh, with opposable thumbs, um, we can create and build and do all manner of things. The response to this digital apocalypse here, where suddenly we go, oh my God, we've created these things. They can, they can act on their own. They move in ways that we don't quite understand. Um, in some respects, they seem to be you know, already much better than we are at doing certain things. Um, the response to this has been uh, utopianism on the one hand and dystopianism on the other. Uh, the utopians say, aha, technology is now so powerful that we can use it to become gods. This is just straight out of guys like Stuart Brand. You know, I mean, if you really want to have a bad day, you can, you can go over to the website of the, uh, the publication called Edge, which was uh, John Brockman's creation. Uh, John Brockman, uh, infamously the guy who uh, connected up Jeffrey Epstein with kind of the, the swanky Silicon Valley community in the, uh, in the 90s and, and, and 2000s. Um, and you can find his interview with, uh, with Stuart Brand there. Stuart Brand, sort of one of the big, you know, early kind of uh, cyber hippies. Um, and Brand says, you know, we are as gods and we have to get good at it. And uh, that is portrayed as a kind of utopianism um, as, or as good news. Uh, you know, I don't think it's particularly good news because it, it turns out not to be true. We are not like gods, uh, even though we're very good at, at creating idols and worshiping idols. And that can include ourselves, uh, the kind of self-reflexivity that is entailed in treating yourself as a God or imagining yourself to be a God, uh, is, you know, is the source of much suffering and ruin on this planet. And, uh, technology does not change that. And in many ways it probably makes it worse. Uh, and so of course, you know, partly in reaction to that, uh, you get the dystopian stuff, which is basically like, oh no, technology has become so powerful. It's not going to make us into gods. Uh, it's going to make us into bugs. It's going to make us into like these sort of scuttling lower life forms. And, you know, there's no doubt that if you are looking for a, a cognate in the, in the world of the living to the swarming digital bots, it's bugs. Um, and it's, you know, no surprise in that respect that um, in the kind of Epstein uh, extended universe, um, complexity theory was very important. Uh, Martin Novak, the guy who, uh, who Epstein basically uh, plucked out of relative obscurity, although he was at Oxford for a number of years and then popped over to uh, 
to the Institute for Advanced Study uh, attached to Princeton, uh, Epstein just, you know, sort of handed, cut this guy a big check or promised him a lot of money and moved him over to Harvard. And it was, uh, it was that researcher who uh, gave Epstein uh, a, a key card that allowed him to get around Harvard campus, gave him his own office with his own telephone line. Um, and basically what, what this guy uh, and his research crew um, worked on, and as far as I know, continue to work on, uh, is trying to understand um, how the, uh, basically the social network of ants and other bugs, um, as well as the behavior of viruses, um, can be used to uh, understand how to make human beings uh, sort of more orderly in a pro-social way. Uh, so you can see that there's kind of like this, this fuzzy zone between the utopian and the dystopian responses to, uh, to the, the apocalyptic unveiling of, of the digital, uh, of the rule of the bots over our world in a way that human beings can't really rule the world anymore. Uh, but really, you know, this, this kind of false choice between utopianism or dystopianism, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the possibility of, you know, of, of human beings looking at the bots and wanting to respond by becoming in some ways more godlike and in other ways more, more bug-like. Uh, these things I think are, are a terrible mistake. Um, it's understandable why people would have that kind of reaction. Uh, but it, it will, it will, it, it promises nothing but ruin. Um, and so what we are stuck with is the recognition that, and the acceptance that we are human beings, um, that are, are given bodies and our souls and our minds that are distinct from brains, um, are, are things that we should embrace things that we should recognize our gifts, uh, and things that we should cherish and protect and defend. And we need to, uh, understand how to do that, um, in a way that is consistent with the digital age that we're in. You know, I'm not the guy who's here to tell you that we need to EMP the world, destroy the machines. Um, you know, we, we got us into this, this mess and, uh, and it's not all bad news. You know, these, the technology is not neutral, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's, it's plumbing or it's, it's weapons. Uh, it extends our capabilities and, uh, and we, we can and should figure out how to use, uh, those tools to serve our ends. Uh, it can be done. Let me, uh, let me just ask about that last part because it seems like uh, a lot of the early stuff in this realm was done for fun and profit, but you mentioned weapons uh, a couple times now and obviously cyber warfare uh, and also information warfare, the info wars, if you will, uh, is becoming uh, in an increasing topic of discussion and concern. Uh, how does that, does that play into this at all? Uh, does it fundamentally, does it alter the dynamic? Is it basically, uh, it's just the same song, different verse. What, uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think it does play in, uh, in a major way. Uh, you know, if you go back far enough in, in American history, you don't have to go back that far, but it feels like a long time ago now. Um, private, persons uh, invented powerful technologies. Um, and if you, uh, if you roll the clock forward to, uh, you know, more or less the Manhattan Project, uh, something else happened. Um, and what happened is that basically all technological innovation, all basic research, all R&D uh, became concentrated in the hands of not just the federal government, uh, but a, a secret government within a government. 
um, a state within a state uh, composed of scientists uh, and the many, many people uh, who they hired to conduct the Manhattan Project in secret across the United States with, you know, installations uh, in numerous states. And I think that at its peak, something like 200,000 people working on the Manhattan Project in secrecy with, you know, fake IDs and the works. Uh, and once that um, capability was was set, uh, that secret scientific government uh, never really went away. Um, you know, once again, you do not have to be Alex Jones to think this way. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that, that Gary Wills, a very you know respected and and mainstream uh, reporter and writer. Uh, put out a book called Bomb Power, which was all about how, you know, the life after the Manhattan Project meant a, a secret part of government uh, and and uh, a part of government that ruled through its secrecy. Uh, it didn't just stick to the four corners of the atomic program, uh, but spread throughout the uh, intelligence community and the military industrial complex and parts of the executive uh, branch, the administrative state. Um, and so, you know, beyond the obvious uh, challenge to what on paper is our form of government constitutionally guaranteed, uh, you have this kind of uh, techno-cultural problem where uh, Americans have increasingly become passive and dependent and even servile with regard to uh, technological developments, which are cooked up in labs that they have no access to really. And that are, are very weakly linked, uh, with the purely private sector as it's known, um, much of Silicon Valley, you know, and much of the internet was, was simply a spinoff of, uh, technology, uh, researched and developed by military and intelligence. Uh, this is, you know, this is everything from, uh, I mean, David Goldman's written about this, everything from, from, uh, the, the laser disc to, uh, cable television, you know, uh, and then of course on into, uh, the iPad and the, the smartphone, you know, GPS touchscreen stuff, um, various kinds of microprocessors. I mean, it's all, it's all there. Uh, and at a certain point, you know, I think we became very accustomed to just sitting back and waiting, uh, for this stuff to descend magically from on high uh, and be handed off to you know people like Steve Jobs, uh, who realized that there was a killing to be made in taking uh, weapons technology and repackaging it with you know sort of skinning it with uh, with very chic shapes and and a very chic aesthetic uh, and selling it to people uh, and that that worked and that worked very well. Um, but what's hidden beneath the surface of that is that, you know, these things are still in a powerful sense weapons, you know, just because you eat your food like a barbarian with, you know, with a, a, a knife in one hand and a club in the other uh, doesn't mean that the knife and the club aren't still weapons. And uh, I think what what the military industrial complex and the intelligence community learned after the Manhattan Project and after the development of the hydrogen bomb and mutually assured destruction and all that is they'd created a super weapon that they couldn't really use. And so, you know, what good is a super weapon to a superpower if at the end of the day, it's, it's useless. Um, and so they needed something else. They needed to justify their continued existence. They needed to justify those big budgets. Uh, and, you know, and they needed to justify to themselves that they had meaning and purpose on this planet and that their, their intelligence and their capabilities were not completely in vain. Um, and so what kind of, what kind of weapons do you create? Well, uh, the realization was that, Hey, you know, we can use technology now to weaponize communications. 
itself. And that is, you know, then you get the internet and then you get the smartphone and then you get uh, a, a media environment and a technological environment that is always on, that is everywhere at once. Um, and that, you know, people are, are habitually or even instinctively inclined to use all the time. That gives you tremendous access to uh, information about people's habits, information about people's, you know, uh, uh, what they say and do inside their homes or inside their workplaces, um, information that you can collect, that you can harvest, uh, that you can store in your databases, uh, and that you can use to identify patterns, um, patterns based on, you know, what these people are doing um, in the same way that you can, you know, uh, observe your swarm of, of bots under your control and start uh, poking them in certain ways and seeing how they react. Uh, and so what's spun out of this is uh, not just an understanding that, that communications itself is a weapon that can be used uh, in ways that even, you know, the, the most powerful uh, military hardware cannot be used, uh, but it opened the door to shifting uh, the concept of of control and mastery uh, toward the the understanding of complexity, the understanding of swarms. Uh, that science has not been very successful. I mean, you know, I I have it on good authority that that Google tried to create some uh, some programs and machines uh, that could uh, that could be trusted to oversee Google Cloud, um, and it it can't really be done. Um, so this is all tied up in the in the military and intelligence, and I think it's all tied up in the fact that we've clearly got kind of a shadow war going on uh, between the U.S. and various other world powers that are all scrambling to be uh, on top of the on top of the the information technology communications technology heap. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the spiritual element, which you've touched on before. What uh, so you know you said that the the you know ye ye shall be as gods option that's not going to work the bug man option that's not going to work uh so how do you what like what how, how do we achieve a proper course and stay spiritually sane you know i guess i guess uh, you also implicitly uh rejected the insightful a uh, analyst of uh ted kaczynski uh, the unabomber you know who i think diagnosed some similar problems but perhaps his uh solutions are not for our age so what um what what then is to be done like what uh you know what can we do to uh, manage and survive this new in you know in many ways inhuman situation that we find ourselves in Yeah so you know Marshall McLuhan himself uh predicted or or foresaw that uh what he called World War 3 would be a a global guerrilla information war with no distinction between civilian and combatant um that's kind of where we are and uh, that's probably one reason why we, we don't have like a, a shooting war between great powers quite yet is because uh, all the, the fighting is being done uh, at the digital level. And yeah, random pieces of infrastructure have been blowing up or, or going wrong, uh, you know, from, uh, from the, the, uh, the, the clogging of the Suez Canal to various refineries exploding for no apparent reason in Beirut and elsewhere, uh, you know, grids going down, um, China is reporting that, oh, we're out of magnesium for a while. So, uh, you know, the supply chain stuff, you know, all these kind of mysterious, what's really at the root of this kind of things. Um, it seems clear to me that, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a major worldwide digital conflict. Um, and many Americans feel 
confused and concerned that they have no way of understanding, much less influencing what's going on, and that they are the playthings of powers, individuals, and entities that they have uh, really no, you know, no leverage over, no ability to interact with. Uh, it's a bad feeling, and uh, I think it's contributing massively to the the undeniable spike in mental illness, uh, diagnosed or otherwise, that is roiling our culture online and off, and affecting our politics. Um, so, you know, how do you preserve your humanity under those circumstances? How do you preserve? Uh, how do you remember the good of being human, that being human warts and all is good news? How can you do that through the technology that is now dominant over the world? Um, and I think, you know, the, the best way to kind of give people a, a quick grasp on how to think through that question is by looking at Bitcoin. And so obviously there's a lot of talk about Bitcoin these days, uh, Bitcoin, uh, BTC, there are a couple of different flavors of Bitcoin, but the, the, the most well-known one, uh, I think just, just broke 60 K, uh, in value. Uh, it can be volatile, but the, the trend lines are clear and you can tell that the trend lines are clear that the crypto is becoming more important because, uh, the state is beginning to freak out a little bit and not just the, the American, the federal government, um, but you know the British and others as well. Obviously, China just China. Banned, banned it outright. Uh, Putin is actually you know looking a, a little bit more favorably on crypto, which I think is important for a couple of different reasons. Uh, and and so what you know how how does Bitcoin help people understand how they can preserve their humanity in a digital age? Uh, and the answer is this. So you know most most Bitcoin evangelists are like, look, you know just just stack sats and just like buy the coin and hold the coin and watch the number go up and boom, we'll have a new financial system and it'll be awesome. And uh, you know, there's a certain logic to that. Um, but I'm not convinced that that argument is the one that gives people the answer to the question that is burning a hole through their souls. Uh, fortunately, there's another way to use Bitcoin uh, and it's a way that, that I am using it um, in, in the release of this book. Uh, so Human Forever is uh, going to be published onto the blockchain um, through uh, through a, a site called Canonic, canonic.xyz. Um, it's going to be published on the blockchain and available for purchase in, uh, in Bitcoin. Um, and the reason why I'm doing this is because I want to show, you know, I want to model for people that right now, right this very minute, you know, you don't have to wait for some future to arrive. You know, that whole sort of like I was promised jetpacks, kind of like morose nostalgia. Like you don't have to wallow in that. You like right now you can use Bitcoin, not just as a way of like trying to get rich or trying to create, um, you know, a, a sort of like your own Wall Street or whatever. Uh, but you can use it to to buy and sell and exchange goods, create goods and services uh, for your friends, for your community, for people who you care about, people who you trust. You know, there's a lot of talk about like, oh, Bitcoin's great because you just trust math. And it's like, well, you know, it's it's important that that your computations sort of pencil out in order to do digital transactions. But you also have to trust mathematicians. You also have to trust people who aren't mathematicians, but who use math. And if we give up on that and just, you know, wait for numbers to save us, they're not going to save us. Bitcoin is powerful because it allows people in communities to independently and, and collectively price 
memorable, valuable goods that they can exchange amongst one another to create culture, not just to, to, to add zeros, but to actually create culture that can't be canceled, can't be erased, can't be edited away by, you know, by anyone, by, by mobs that hate you, by governments that hate you, um, or just by, you know, corporations that are worried about covering their ass, you know, sort of compliance mindset, all of that stuff you can, you can, you can dart away from and you can pour your, your spiritual and your human energy uh, into creating culture through Bitcoin right now. Uh, that's why uh, I'm putting my book out in this way. If you want to sign up now to figure out or to find out, I should say, when the book is going to go up as an NFT, when exactly it's going to go on sale, this stuff is going to be happening pretty soon. You just go over to humanforever.us, humanforever.us, enter your email and you'll be among the first to know. Uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of my, my window onto, uh, the solution that I think is, you know, you don't have to sit there and wish for it. It's sitting right there waiting to be taken advantage of. If Americans don't, uh, get their hands on their own databases, if they, if they lack computers, GPUs with, with sufficient power to do things like mine cryptocurrencies, uh, they're just going to be herded into this social credit system that we already see being formed all around us. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's not good enough for America. It's not consistent with American life. It's not consistent with our form of government. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's uh, hostile to our humanity. What is a Bitcoin monastery? Yeah, because so, you know, so among the other things that you can do uh, with Bitcoin in the manner that I described, uh, is you can create institutions um, and you can create institutions where, um, look, I'll, I'll put it this way. There's, there's a footnote in Democracy in America, Tocqueville's famous uh, uh, epic two-volume work um, that doesn't always get a lot which of notice. You a, which you wrote your previous book about, The Art of Being Free, which is yes. available uh, not just for Bitcoin, but uh, through traditional whatevers as well. Yes, traditional whatevers, still still valuable, still viable. Um, uh, so the footnote basically says, like, look, trying to march all of humanity down the same path to a single endpoint is a mortal idea, um, and it is also a sterile idea. It's not sterile because it's something that human beings think of, but it is. It it reflects a limit of understanding um, among people who who fail to take seriously the difference between uh, us created people and the creator. And Tocqueville says a divine idea is to lead everyone toward the same end through a, an infinite variety of paths. And I think this is strongly reflected in the way that Bitcoin works and the way that it is differentiated from the social credit path, which is the one that we're all being mar marched down right now in a very sterile way. So, you know, you can create uh, literally or figuratively a kind of monastery through Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, the valuable things that Bitcoin can do in the, the manner that I described is, is to create culture. Um, and this can be the kind of culture that, you know, is, is consistent with what in America we think of as like the traditional normie life, right? You have kids, you sort of go to your local church, you have sporting, like send the kids to sports, you, you, you know, you, you grill, you party, you have people over, um, red solo cups, like good times, tailgates, all that kind of stuff. You know, that kind of culture is something that you can create um, through and, and on Bitcoin. Uh, but you can also create, you know, kinds of, of traditional or dare I say eternal culture uh, that do not involve children, uh, that do not involve sports, that do not involve, you know, many of the sort of relishes 
that we are accustomed to in America and that, you know, sometimes we enjoy excessively, but sometimes we enjoy in a reasonable fashion for, for good ends. Um, there are many people right now who look at the world in, in light of the, the, the apocalyptic revelation that the machines now rule the planet in a way that no human or no human organization can do. And they say, you know what? I feel like I should be the end of my, of my family line. I don't want to have children. I don't know what to tell them. I don't uh, understand sort of like where this is going. Uh, and I want to turn inward. Um, some of those people I think are, are making a mistake. You know, I, I don't think that the earth is going to burn to a crisp in the next 10 years. And even if it was, the obvious answer would be to just EMP China into the stone age. Yet no one talks about that. Interesting. Um, but there are other people who, you know, who sort of recognize that much of the world is soul sick, is spiritually ill, um, suicides going up, obesity going up, people just hating the fact that they're human beings. Uh, it's, it's gnarly. And one powerful and important reaction to that is the desire to do what monks have done throughout the ages, which is gather together um, and absent themselves off to some very remote location. Uh, and dedicate their lives not to continuing on the human race biologically or to, you know, growing the economic pie or any of that at all, but rather to, um, to uh, becoming the, the husbands or caretakers of uh, the accumulated wisdom, the most precious wisdom um, of the ages and, uh, and wisdom that encapsulates and causes us to remember uh, the truth about our relationship to the cosmos and to the divine. Um, that is a kind of activity that you can still do literally going off to a monastery, literally in the mountains or on an island somewhere. Uh, but I think the reality is that that many people who are are very thirsty, desperately so in some cases, for that kind of experience and that kind of life are just not they're not going to the monasteries right now, not the, not the real ones, not the ones in meat space, whatever. Um, but that these people, uh, can do monastic like activities of preserving culture at a very high and aesthetic level, um, on the internet digitally, uh, you know, through, through Bitcoin, Bitcoin allows you to, uh, to really build a digital library that cannot be burned down. Um, and I think it's just amazing and telling that in a more innocent time, you know, we all kind of thought of the internet as, as the perfect library or the ultimate library. Uh, and now, you know, page one of Google results, which is as far as anyone goes, is mostly advertisements. Uh, the Netflix library continues to shrink down and they, they and, you know, Prime Video continue to just herd everyone toward like, you know, the latest uh, in-house production of some, you know, like, uh, uh, sufficiently like woke or culturally determined, uh, piece of content. Uh, our universe is being dramatically shrunken down. Uh, people are forgetting what it is that they even liked or enjoyed or cherished in the, the pre-digital times. Uh, they're losing the ability to, uh, remember the culture that they need to transmit to their own children and their own community in order to have the next generation come of age through rites of passage that, that make them confidently and courageously inhabit their own maturity. Um, and so the, the library metaphor is, is collapsing. 
uh, in digital life right now. And uh, Bitcoin helps people uh, to to salvage it and to uh, and to create you know things that are are best analogized to not only libraries but cathedrals, things that take centuries to complete, uh, things that that are beautiful and require generation after generation to embark on a shared uh, uh, and sacred mission together. You know that stuff is really important, and uh, there's still a way that it can be done even uh, amid all of our our digital entities. Okay, you know, we often end our show by asking someone to talk about a cultural product, a movie, TV show, or whatever uh, that they like that relates to today's topic. Uh, that seems a little uh, a little off for the nature of our conversation. But uh, what are your favorite TikTok accounts? Well, so I'll say a couple things. Uh, one, I do have a movie recommendation. Um, if okay. anyone wants to understand the uh, the social credit system that awaits if we fail to reclaim control over databases and and use uh, Bitcoin to build uh, human culture and protect our human identity. Uh, there's a film called Vivarium that came out a couple of years ago. Um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, I believe, is the is the male lead. Uh, Imogen Poots is the female lead. Um, and it's, it's very disturbing. It's a very disturbing film. Um, but, uh, it's, it's a great sort of fable or analogy, uh, of what life will be like in a world where, you know, where, where God, the existence of God or the divine is forgotten, uh, where it's kind of impossible for people to understand what the point is of having children or, or carrying on their human lives. Um, uh, I think the best analogy for the social credit system is a cyborg vivarium where we're merged with our machines and uh, kept alive in some form, but one that is increasingly alienated and abstracted away from our humanity. Uh, so there, there's my movie recommendation. Um, as far as TikToks go, um, I have uh, I have one child so far, uh, and and that child is not allowed to post on TikTok, uh, but it is it has been fascinating to watch. Uh, dank memes uh, become <laughs> a whole rich source of culture on TikTok. Uh, and so people who think that, you know, TikTok and all these sort of newfangled social media apps are really just nothing more than a fire hose of like, uh, you know, debauched or deranged uh, content. Um, the reality is that if you're like a young guy and you uh, are kind of hanging out on your phone with your friends. Um, there's a, an ample supply of memes and TikToks out there uh, that basically tells you that you're not insane, uh, that you know biological distinctions between men and women actually exist, um, and you know these young people are not looking up to millennials. Uh, on the scale that is, I think, imagined by by older generations. Uh, they're not looking up to them and going like, wow, like that's the life I want. They're looking at these people and going like, you're mentally ill. You have no degree of physical fitness. You are always crying or screaming at me, trying to get me to believe nonsense. And they just mock them. They find them to be objects of ridicule, frightening ones sometimes, but objects of ridicule above all. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the generational, the like kind of boomer mindset where every generation is kind of at odds with the one that's older than them. I think those distinctions are melting away. And I think that under digital pressure, you know, people across generations 
are uh, are choosing sides, you know, with with the cyborg vivarium on one side and with, you know, protecting our humanity and having a good time doing it on the other. Doug, if you just want to throw one question at me on, on any topic, I, I, I'd hate for you to feel left out. <laughs> well, I, I think I did ask one question. And, and I think the reason why I didn't um, jump in more uh, was because I really felt like that anything I was about to say would have sounded argumentative. And I think it's not because I was trying to be argumentative. Uh, quite the contrary, I was trying to avoid that uh, because I'm in such a different place than what you're describing right now. Uh, I'm somebody who uh, my father died this year. I have very much a sense of uh, mortality and a desire to get to know uh, heritage and roots. Uh, I recently, I think for like the last 30 days, I've logged off of social media for the most part, at least logged off of Twitter. So, uh, and I think I've, I've reactivated my account with basically a message that says, log off and read a book. Um, and so, um, for me right now, uh, I'm not to challenge what you're saying, but for me, this is all sort of, uh, I'm at a different place. Um, and so, uh, and I would actually, I guess leading this up to a question is for all the things you're describing, you know, like I said, I've been doing a lot of work on genealogy and DNA, and that seems to be a very popular thing right now, particularly down there during the pandemic, people have had time on their hands. I think that that's an indication that there's still a lot of people that are very interested in their heritage, in where they've come, and that line back to their ancestors. And I think it's becoming more of a common theme. What do you What do you say about that? Well, I mean, thank you. This is you know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. Uh, it's it is fathers are so important right now, and just like what is a father? What's the point of being a father? What's the good of being a father? What happens when we lose fathers? You know, what what happens when we tell generations of boys that like, well, you can't be a soldier because you're killing, you know, the wrong killing brown people or whatever. Or you can't be a priest because then you're like molesting kids. You know, you can't be a father because that's patriarchy. Just you know, what happens to boys when all of their avenues toward right of passage and coming of age are taken away. That's really important stuff. And I think, you know, because of this technological surround that we're in, um, despite the the frantic memes coming out of the regime, like people are starting to care more about saving their soul than about saving the world. Uh, they're starting to care more and starting to understand the power and the value of biography, autobiography, lineage, you know, remembering who you are, remembering where you came from, remembering that people who came before you are just as much uh, of humans with souls as, as you are, you know, these things are all terribly important. And, and it makes sense to me, uh, that, uh, these things are being returned to our lives as, you know, the obsession with, with rationalism that defined the print era and the, the obsession with the occult that defined the TV era, uh, are proving to, you know, the, the limits and the weaknesses of those, uh, of those casts of minds are, are really being exposed. Um, I will say this though, you know, yes, Logging off is great. Yes, picking up, you know, the best books of all time and reading them and, and sitting with them is great. Walking around in nature, uh, you know, prayerful reflection, meditation. Yes, I support all those things. At the same time, we cannot seed the ground of technology to people who uh, are actively working to break the thread of human memory to make us uh, want to forget our ancestors, to make us want to, you know, not have children, to make us want to eat synthetic foods instead of real foods. 
uh, who, who want us to, you know, indeed live in the pod and eat the bugs. And, you know, they don't just want to trap us in their databases. They want to trap us in TVs inside of their databases. Uh, we cannot just walk away from technology and expect that like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll care about our families. We'll care about our communities. We'll read the right books and that'll see us through. I wish that that were the case. Uh, it's just not. So uh, definitely, you know, we, we want people doing all kinds of things, but we want to be sure that enough of people who uh, understand the good uh, of being human and the importance of preserving our humanity uh, are fully engaged with, uh, with the, the technology that exists and are hard at work, you know, using it to, to bend it back toward, uh, toward our purposes, uh, and not the purposes of people who, you know, whether, uh, whether they're, they're utopians or dystopians are ultimately anti-human. All right. Our guest today has been James Poulos. James, thank you very much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thank you guys.